presenting Focus on Truth, the Bible teaching ministry of Chuck Bradshaw. Focus on Truth is a non-denominational evangelical Christian ministry to the marketplace. Focus on Truth is dedicated to proclaiming the gospel of the free grace of God and helping people understand the practical relevance of the Bible. Join now with Chuck as together we focus on the truth of God's Word. So this is our <clears throat> fifth in our session on uh, what, what I've entitled Deserted by God, uh, and that is a question, of course, where we're looking at the dark side of Christian experience. We're looking at those uh, incidents, those times in which there's a lot of doubt in our minds. Uh, is God really there? Is, uh, is God working in our lives? We've, uh, we've looked at a couple of the Psalms. We've looked at uh, Habakkuk. Last week we looked at Samson and talked about a time in which uh, Samson was not even aware of the absence of God. And today we're going to look at a, uh, a, a character that I think we're all familiar with in terms of uh, we recognize the name not sure how much we know about the person, and of course uh, the the information is a little spotty, but we're going to talk about John the baptizer, and we're going to talk about the moment of doubt that he had. Uh, and uh, <clears throat> but to set the stage for that, I think we probably need to look at some other things first. Certainly, he was a forerunner. Uh, John was a forerunner to the Messiah. When you look at the Old Testament. It was clear by the time you got to 600 B.C. and the ministry of Isaiah that the, that the Messiah clearly was going to come. Nobody knew it was going to be 600 to 650 years from then. They knew the Messiah was coming, and it was Isaiah who first started talking about the fact that before the Messiah would come, there would be someone who would come right before him to kind of prepare the way, which is not unusual when... Uh, when kings uh, would make their uh, trips in that day, just like when our president makes his trip. Usually there's a delegation that precedes him, and there's a lot of talking among some of the lower functionaries. But in that day, uh, the, the person who would precede the king was one who went down the road, and in fact, there'd be usually be groups of them, and they would clear all the large boulders out of the way so that the king's chariot wouldn't have any trouble getting where it was going. And that person was known as the forerunner. They would also herald the coming of the king. And so Isaiah talked about one coming who would prepare the way for the Messiah. And then right at the time that the Old Testament canon closes in the book of Malachi, uh, and that would have been around 400 B.C., there are a couple of more uh, references to the fact that when the Messiah comes, there's one who is going to come in the spirit of Elijah who will turn the hearts of the children back to the fathers. And, of course, uh, those are references we discover, and that will become clear, I think. Uh, they were certainly references to the person we call John the Baptist or John the Baptizer. Uh, John appears on the scene after 400 years of silence. Remember, by this time, you know, you've got, uh, you've got let's see, the... Uh, uh, the Greeks, uh, the Greek influence really became uh, prevalent around 333 B.C. That's an easy thing. It rhymes. That's easy to remember. At the Battle of the Issus uh, River, the uh, Greeks overcame the, uh, the Persian Empire, and so even all of Palestine, 
which would have included uh, modern-day Jerusalem, in fact, as far north even as Damascus. All of that would have come under Greek influence. Uh, and that's certainly within this 400-year uh, silent period that we're talking about. And then, of course, uh, the Romans uh, came in, uh, and there are different uh, views about the time, but around 42 B.C., uh, there's a de they defeat the, uh, the Greeks and take over that same area. And so by the time John appears on the scene, the people uh, in the land of Palestine... Uh, in the promised land are really chafing under the, uh, under the hobnail sandals of these oppressors like the Greeks and the Romans and, and the folks who had preceded them. So there was really a lot of anticipation of a Messiah, uh, somebody who was going to come along. And of course, when they thought in terms of the Messiah, they thought of someone who would come along who would get those hobnail sandals off their necks. That's what they were looking for. Uh, it's interesting, I think, to note that Jesus um, was born about six months after the baptizer was born. Remember, it was uh, after Elizabeth had become pregnant. Uh, it was in her sixth month that the angel Gabriel appeared to Mary and told her that she was going to have a baby, and it was at that point that Mary uh, spent some time with Elizabeth. So let's kind of look at the background, look at some of John's preparation in Luke chapter 1, we could, uh, we could spend our entire time looking at that, but I've abbreviated the text here for us, and I just want us to look at some of the high points. It says, In the time of Herod, king of Judea. Now, this Herod would have been uh, Herod the Great. In the time of Herod, king of Judea, there was a priest named Zechariah. His wife, Elizabeth, was also a descendant of Aaron. That would have been of the priestly family. Both of them were upright in the sight of God, but they had no children because Elizabeth was barren and they were both well along in years. So certainly they had no anticipation that they were going to have a child. The inference is that uh, Elizabeth is already beyond menopause. Zechariah is an old man. But of course, if, uh, if they'd been reading their Bible and read about Abraham and Sarah, they would certainly know that God can work even in a situation like that. It says uh, in verse 8, once when Zechariah's division was on duty. Now that makes it sound like an army, but remember you had a tremendous number of priests and what they would do, in fact very much like an army, say like an army that's uh, occupying a particular area, you've got say you've got a, a brigade or a battalion that comes in and occupies this area for maybe six months or so or a year and then they move out, and another group moves in, and then they occupy the area. It's kind of the same way uh, in the, the priests were in various divisions, so that uh, they would come, they were scattered all over the land of Israel, and they would come to the uh, area of Jerusalem where they were going to be ministering and serving, and they would serve there for a short period of time. Usually it was just a, a, a month or two. And then when their time was up, they would go back home and another division would come in and they would do their duty. So that's what, the, what's what Luke's talking about here. Once when Zechariah's division was on duty and he was serving as priest before God, an angel of the Lord appeared to him. Now you remember, it was, uh, what he was doing was not unusual. He was ministering before the Lord. You remember, if you recall the story, we usually read it at Christmas that he was changing uh, the incense or lighting the incense in the little pot that was right outside the veil 
where the Holy of Holies was beyond that. And while he was standing there just going through the motions, he'd been doing this for years and years and years. Every time it came his turn, he would, he would do this. And all of a sudden, for the first time in his life, there's an angel that's standing there. And it's very startling. He's very afraid. We learn later that the angel is Gabriel. And it says in verse 13, the angel said to him, don't be afraid, Zechariah. Your prayer has been heard. Your wife, Elizabeth, will bear you a son, and you are to give him the name John. He will be a joy and delight to you, and many will rejoice because of his birth, for he will be great in the sight of the Lord. And then it tells us some interesting things about John. It says he is never to take wine or other fermented drink, and he will be filled with the Holy Spirit even from birth. Now, this is the third person in the Bible that we read about who was born uh, under a Nazarite vow. Now, we talked some about this last week when we talked about Samson. Remember, there are three people in the Bible. Uh, the Nazarite vow was a vow of dedication. You could, uh, you could either, it could either be a temporary uh, commitment where you would dedicate yourself to, uh, to the Lord uh, for a certain purpose, for a certain specific period of time, but then there were other people who were permanent Nazarites. Now, you could always spot the Nazarites, uh, and there were several things about them that were outstanding. Uh, one is that they didn't uh, eat or drink anything that was from the vine. That, mean they, that means they didn't drink wine, grape juice, didn't eat raisins, nothing like that. They were separated from that. Uh, secondly, they could never come in contact with a dead body. And then thirdly, and this was probably the thing that made them stand out more than anything else, is that they never cut their hair. Not from day one did they ever cut their hair. Now, there are three people in the, uh, in the Bible who are known to have taken this permanent Nazarite vow. Now, if you want to read about the Nazarites, the, you, can find about, you can find out about that in Numbers chapter 6. And... Uh, but the people who took permanent Nazarite vows, there are three that we know of in the Bible. Uh, first one is Samson. We talked about him last week. The second one is the last of the judges and the first of the prophets. Uh, that's Samuel. And then the third and the last one that we know of, uh, we remember that Paul apparently took a temporary Nazarite vow at one time, but the last permanent uh, Nazarite person was the one of whom we are speaking today, and that's uh, John the Baptizer. And again, it's just a, it's a, a dedication to the Lord. That's not to say that other people weren't dedicated, but they were just uh, unusually dedicated, and there were some real strict rules, as I've already mentioned. Uh, they could marry, yes. In fact, uh, Samuel, uh, you remember Samson married, and uh, had a boy, he had a tough time with women. Uh, Samuel married and had a couple of sons who were just as ungodly as they could be. And uh, as far as we know, the baptizer himself uh, never married. If, if he was, the, the scripture is, uh, is silent as far as that is concerned. Interesting thing about this is not only were these things operational in John's life, but it says he will be filled from the Holy, he will be filled with the Holy Spirit even from his birth. So here's a person, even before the coming of the Spirit <clears throat> on the day of Pentecost, whose life is 
uh, characterized by being filled with the Spirit, being controlled by the Spirit, which makes it even more interesting when uh, a little later when we see the struggle that he was having. Uh, the angel is still speaking here, and in verse 16 of Luke 1 it says, Many of the people of Israel will he bring back to the Lord their God, and he will go on before the Lord in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers to their children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the righteous, to make ready a people prepared for the Lord. Now there, the angel is quoting from Malachi chapter 4, verse 6, talking about the forerunner, the one who is to come before the Messiah and saying, this kid, Zechariah, of yours, the one you're going to name John, he is the one. And then there's an a interesting chain of events uh, that, uh, that we're just going to skip over about, uh, about his birth, and of course the birth of the Savior as well, six months later. But verse 80 of Luke chapter 1 tells us about John, and the child grew and became strong in spirit, and he lived in the desert until he appeared publicly to Israel. So apparently he did not have, um, he was not educated the way that other Israelite children were in synagogue. He lived a, a rather Spartan existence out uh, in the desert somewhere. And then all of a sudden one day, just as in the case of his namesake, as it were, Elijah, uh, all of a sudden, just out of the blue, you remember Elijah just appeared on the scene and said, Ahab, guess what? It's not going to rain again until I say so, and that's going to be three and a half years from now. Well, that's essentially the kind of thing that John did. Nobody knew anything about John. Uh, uh, at this point, Jesus uh, is not ministering at all, and the next thing you know, John just appears on the scene. Apparently, the call of God, we know he's filled with the Spirit, so it's time the Spirit uh, uh, gets him to go out there and, uh, and begin his ministry. And in Matthew chapter 3, we see John's presentation, his sudden appearance. Verse 1 says, In those days John the Baptist came preaching in the desert of Judea and saying, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is near. Now if we draw our little map up here again, and we say here's the Sea of Galilee, and there's the Jordan River, and here's the Dead Sea, and that's the shoreline, Jerusalem would be located uh, about right here. This, this whole southern area down here is, uh, is Judea. And so John is, John is ministering primarily uh, in this area right here. And of course, uh, there's a lot of water in this area, so he can, uh, he can do his baptizing. Now, uh, so that we can go ahead and settle this issue, did John dip, did he pour, did he sprinkle? The Bible never says, so you pick whichever one you like. Uh, some people say, well, it says John came up out of the water, Jesus came up out of the water. Well, that's true, that's what it says, but does that mean that he walked up out of the water? Was John, it was very common in that day for water to be poured out like a gourd or a pitcher, uh, so you take your pick. Uh, I, I think sometimes we lose fellowship uh, over things like that. I think it's important to be baptized as a believer. But the method, and I have my preferences about methodology, and I'm sure you do too, but well, not to lose fellowship over that. Uh, but anyway, John shows up just out of the blue. He appears, and in down here in the region of Judea, and remember, the further south you go, the more you, in, you, you go into the desert area, 
and he's preaching repent. Now, what, what does repent mean? Remember, repent means change your mind, and it means change your mind with a view to changing your actions. I'm going in this direction, and God calls upon me to repent, and that is to change my mind about the way I'm going, to change my mind about the way I view myself, to change my mind about the way I view Him. And if I change my mind, then what's going to happen is my life's going to be turned around dramatically and I'm going to be going in a different direction. That's what John's saying. Repent. And then he says, for the kingdom of heaven is near. Now, Matthew is the one who, uh, because the, uh, Matthew wrote primarily to a Jewish readership, uh, Matthew uses the term kingdom of heaven. The other gospel writers tend to use the term kingdom of God. They really, some people have just split hairs and tried to make them mean different things, but it's apparent that they are the, uh, the same thing. But when you've got a kingdom, what you're talking about is the rule of God. That is, that God is sovereign, that he has, uh, if, if you've got a kingdom, you've got several things. One, you've got a king. Secondly, you've got a group of people over whom the king is ruling. Well, the people of God today are the kingdom of God. Our king is Jesus. Our, our allegiance is to him. And he rules over us and he cares for us. It says in verse 4, John's clothes were made of camel's hair and he had a leather belt around his waist. His food was locusts and wild honey. He's a man alive. I think I'd rather eat at the Burger King. But remember, locusts, uh, according to Levitical law, were clean food. So, and, of course, they were plentiful in this area where John was living, as was honey. Honey was abundant all over this place because of, uh, because of all of the bees, obviously. People went out to him from Jerusalem and all Judea and the whole region of the Jordan. And just think about it. Remember... Uh, there have been 400 silent years. The last time God has said anything was around, oh, 397, somewhere along in there, and that was through, uh, that was through Malachi. Some people call that Malachi and think he's an Italian prophet. But this is, uh, this is Malachi. He's a Hebrew prophet. And since that time, God has said nothing. I mean, the heavens have been silent, and the... The Persians have been defeated and the Greeks have been defeated and the Romans now are occupying the land and people were getting tired of it. Messianic expectation was growing. They're saying, we need somebody to get us out of this mess. And then all of a sudden, out of the blue from nowhere, the baptizer just appears on the scene and says, repent, the kingdom of God is near. The kingdom of God is at hand. And so you got all these folks from Jerusalem and all Judea and the whole region of the Jordan. And what were they doing? Verse 6, confessing their sins, they were baptized by him in the Jordan River. But when he saw many of the Pharisees and Sadducees coming to where he was baptizing, now remember, you, you, uh, these, this was, the, uh, this was the, uh, the religious hierarchy, the 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 ruling body of the Jews as far as, uh, obviously the Romans were in legal control, but as far as religious control, there was a group of 70 men uh, that comprised what was known as the Sanhedrin. And this was, uh, this was 70 rabbis. 
and they're the ones who settled all the religious issues. The Sanhedrin was made up of two groups. They were made up of Pharisees, and they were made up of the Sadducees. C-C-E, I don't think I spelled that right, but it's, it's in, your, in your notes. They're made up of, it seems like Sadducees has got two, and there may just be one of those. The Pharisees and the Sadducees. The Pharisees were sort of the fighting fundies of that day. They were the real fundamentalists. They believed the, what the Old Testament said. Now, they had added a lot of oral tradition to the Old Testament, but they believed in things like angels and the resurrection from the dead and all of those kinds of things. The Sadducees uh, were a little bit different. They were what we would call today the liberal establishment of, the, uh, of, the religious, uh, of this religious group because uh, they didn't believe in anything supernatural. They didn't be- uh, so obviously they didn't believe in angels. They didn't believe in resurrection from the dead. And much of that stems from, uh, from Greek influence because remember... The, uh, the Greeks didn't believe in the resurrection from the dead. They, uh, the Greeks uh, propagated something that was known as dualism, and that is that the, uh, the spirit was totally good, the body was totally evil, and one of the best things that could happen to you would be to be separated from your body, and who in the world would ever want to get their body back? And so there's a lot of uh, Greek influence in the thinking of these, uh, of these Sadducees. But they, they had some different ideas that way. So when these guys uh, were coming to where he was baptizing, notice uh, he didn't say very ingratiating things to them. He said, you brood of vipers. Now, what's a viper? Yeah, it's not only a snake. What kind of snake is it? It is a poisonous snake. He said, you bunch of poisonous snakes. Who warned you to flee from the coming wrath? Notice, in John's mind, when he says, who warned you to flee from the coming wrath? In John's mind, the coming of the Messiah is linked with coming judgment. That is, when the Messiah comes, what was it that he's going to do? He's going to take the, those hob, that hobnail sandal off the back of the neck of the Jewish people. So, even John had some uh, messianic uh, expectations that are related to judgment. He says, produce fruit in keeping with repentance. That is, if you're truly repented, your lives ought to change. He says, and do not think you can say to yourselves, we have Abraham as our father. You see, he's saying, look, what you're thinking is you think ethnically because you are descended from Abraham that you're okay. In other words, somehow you salvation has derived uh, to you on the basis of osmosis. It's just been kind of passed down to you because somehow you're descended from from Abraham. He says, don't think you can say to yourselves, we have Abraham as our father. I tell you that out of these stones, God can raise up children for Abraham. Verse 11, I baptize you with water for repentance, but after me will come one. Now notice, Jesus is still not on the scene yet. Jesus is not ministering yet. This guy is the forerunner. He's the one who's plowing the way, who's busting the way open. Uh, There will come one who is more powerful than I, whose sandals I am not fit to carry. Some versions say whose sandals I am not fit to unloose, that is, unbuckle or untie. And even that was slaves' work. He says, he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit, that is, with power, and 
with fire, and the fire represents the judgment. So he says that's the the one who's coming is uh, is going to do that. So you see, he's got a, his activities include preaching and baptizing, and certainly confronting. And he is while he's real popular at this point with the general public. Uh, what kind of popularity do you think he had with the uh, with the Sanhedrin, with the uh, religious elite? No, it wasn't popular at all. You're exactly right. John 1 tells us a little bit about his sense of identity, of who, of his recognition of his role, that is, who he is. In John 1, now of course John 1 begins with, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God, in verse 14, and the Word uh, became flesh and tabernacled or dwelt among us. But then in verse 19, it switches to John and the testimony that John had. It said, now this was John's testimony when the Jews of Jerusalem sent priests and Levites to ask him who he was. He did not fail to confess, but confessed freely, I am not the Christ. I am not the Messiah. They asked him, then who are you? Are, are you Elijah? Now why would they ask him if he was Elijah? That's right, because of, the, the, because of the passage in Malachi that Malachi had prophesied that before the great day of the Lord, before, before the Messiah came, that someone, actually it says in the spirit of Elijah, someone with the spirit of Elijah will come along. He said, are you Elijah? Are you? And he said, no, I am not. Are you the prophet? Now, the, the term the prophet had a very particular meaning in that day. One of the things that uh, Moses talked about in Deuteronomy chapter 18, verses 15 and 18, is that God told Moses there would come a time when God would raise up a prophet, uh, a particular prophet. And of course, it was a messianic reference. It was talking about the fact that uh, thousands of years away, that Jesus, uh, that Jesus would eventually come along. He says, are you the prophet? Are you the one Moses talked about? And he answered, no. Finally, they said, well, who are you? Give us an answer to take back to those who sent us. What do you say about yourself? And then John replied in the words of Isaiah the prophet. And what he does is he quotes here from Isaiah chapter 40, verse 3, when he says, I am the voice of one calling in the desert, make straight the way for the Lord. And then a few verses later in verse 29, it says, The next day John saw Jesus coming toward him and said, Look, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. This is the one I meant when I said, A man who comes after me has surpassed me because he was before me. I myself did not know him, but the reason I came baptizing with water was that he might be revealed to Israel. Now, let me tell you what. Those three verses are just jam-packed with tremendous thoughts. When John says, and probably pointed his bony finger, said, look, the Lamb of God. What he's referring to is, remember, every year the, uh, the Jews had an, had an annual feast called Passover. <clears throat> And of course, it was a uh, it was a celebration of that first Passover when the Exodus occurred, and the Jewish people uh, uh, killed a lamb. They uh, applied the the blood. They caught some of the blood in a uh, in a, a basin or a bowl, 
and they, they took a little sprig of a bush that just grew wild everywhere, something called hyssop, and they dipped it in the bowl and they put it on the doorpost and on the lintel of the door. And then when the death angel came through Egypt that night, what did the death angel do when he saw the blood? He passed over. That's how we get the name Passover. It was a Passover lamb. And what John is saying, he's saying, this is the lamb of God. This is the ultimate Passover lamb. The one who puts his faith in this person, the wrath of God will pass over this person. He will not be affected in that way. And notice, he takes away the sin of the world. The, the, when when this, this, this one, this Messiah comes, he's not exclusively for Jewish people. He's for all of God's people, both from the Jews and from the Gentiles as well. And then he's, notice what he said in verse 30. A man who comes after me, John says, has surpassed me because he was before me. You say, well, wait a minute. John was six months older than Jesus. How could Jesus be before him? And, of course, what is that a reference to? That's a reference to the fact John is noting here the pre-incarnate existence of, uh, of the Son of God. In other words, the Son, uh, remember what Isaiah said, a child is born, a son is given. And the second person of the Godhead who has existed from all eternity in finally stepped out of eternity and stepped into time and space and the one who had been the one who had existed from all eternity took on human flesh became incarnated took on human flesh that's what John's talking about here he's talking about the pre-existence of the son I myself didn't know him I didn't recognize him he said but the reason I came baptizing with water was that he might be revealed to Israel. Now, how was he revealed to John? You remember, John was baptizing a lot of folks, and all of a sudden, Jesus walked up to him, and as Jesus started walking up, you remember uh, uh, God spoke out of heaven. Uh, Jesus spoke to John, said, and John said, look, I need to be baptized by you. I don't need to be baptizing you. And Jesus said, let it be so now to fulfill everything. And John baptized him, and when he came up out of the water, it says that the Holy Spirit in the form of a dove came on the sun, and there was a voice that spoke out of heaven and said, this is the one, this is my son. So John was aware of who Jesus is and was and is, and, uh, and certainly aware of his, uh, of his role. Now, if you look in John chapter 3, by this time... You know, now, when Jesus was baptized, remember, uh, right after he's baptized, he goes off into the wilderness where he's going to be tempted for 40 days. He, Jesus hasn't even done his first uh, miracle yet. And it's, uh, it's the baptizer who's attracting the crowds, attracting all kinds of onlookers, tremendous audiences, and even the baptizer has a group of people following him wherever he goes. They're his disciples. Remember, Andrew was... Uh, who subsequently became one of Jesus' disciples, was formerly a disciple of the baptizer. Notice in John 3, it tells us a little bit uh, more about, uh, about, uh, about John the Baptist here. It says, They came to John and said to him, Rabbi, that man <clears throat> who was with you on the other side of the Jordan, the one you testified about. Now, who are they talking about? Jesus, that's right. 
Well, he's baptizing, which was actually not true. Jesus never baptized anyone, but his disciples did. Well, he's baptizing, and everyone is going to him. And in fact, some of John's disciples at this point, Andrew, has already gone over and begun to follow Jesus. So here's a person whose job is to be the forerunner, and now the king has come upon the scene, and the forerunner now is not going to be in competition with the king. If you've ever been to a concert, one of the things that you'll notice that happens sometimes is uh, almost always they say, okay, the concert's going to start at 7 o'clock, uh, some kind of music concert. Let's see. Like when we went to see the Temptations, at, oh, that was pretty good. When we went to see the Temps at the, uh, at the Civic Center, I think it started like at eight, 7 or 8 o'clock that night. Well, the Temps weren't on stage when the thing started. They had one or two warm-up groups who came in. They kind of blew the way open, got everybody in the right mood, and then finally about 9.30 or 10 o'clock, it got real still, and all of a sudden the temptations took to the stage, and they were the center of attention. Do you think those groups that did the warm-up got back up on the stage with the temptations? No, sir, buddy. No way did they do that. And so now things are beginning to change for John. Notice it says in verse 27, To this John replied, A man can receive only what is given him from heaven. You yourselves can testify that I said... I am not the Christ, I am not the Messiah, but am sent ahead of him. The bride, that's the church, the believers, the bride belongs to the bridegroom. The friend who attends the bridegroom, and John is thinking of himself as that friend, the friend who attends the bridegroom waits and listens for him and is full of joy when he hears the bridegroom's voice. That joy is mine, and it is now complete. Why is it complete? because the bridegroom is there, right? Notice verse 30. He must become greater. I must become less. See, John realized that, that the, the more he proclaimed the coming of Christ, the more he proclaimed repentance, the kingdom of God is at hand. As Jesus came on the scene, his role was going to be less and less. Even his own disciples, some of them, were beginning to turn away from him and to begin to follow the one to whom John had been pointing all of this time. And John was not having a problem with that. He said, I like the way the King James says it. He says, he must increase, but I must decrease. And that didn't bother John. See, some of us would think, oh man, here I've been had center stage all this time. I, I hate to give up the limelight here. That was not John's attitude. Now notice what happens when we see, we see John persecuted and we'll kind of press along here. In Matthew chapter 11, by then uh, John had been uh, thrown into prison. In fact, if you look down at Mark chapter 6, let's just look at that for a minute. Verse 17, For Herod himself, now the Herod here is not Herod the Great, this is Herod Antipas, A-N-T-I-P-A-S. For Herod himself have given orders to have John arrested and he had him bound and put in prison. He did this because of Herodias, his brother Philip's wife, whom he had married. In other words, uh, Herodias was married to Philip. Uh, uh, Herod Antipas was married. I've forgotten what the woman's name. Both of them divorced their uh, mates, 
and married each other. It was kind of a, uh, a marital musical chairs that was going on. And God uh, and John called her hand. For John had been saying to Herod, it's not lawful for you to have your brother's wife. So Herodias nursed a grudge against John and wanted to kill him. But she was not able to because Herod feared John and protected him, knowing him to be a righteous and holy man. In fact, what, uh, what Herod did, there was, a, uh, there was a prison down here at the southern end of the Dead Sea on the, uh, on the eastern side, and that's where John was imprisoned by, uh, by Herod. And notice it goes on to say, he was greatly puzzled, yet he liked to listen to him. This guy's kind of torn. Herod's sort of torn. He, he likes to hear what the guys say. He can't quite figure it out, but he's a good preacher. Now, incidentally, when John is thrown into prison, now, it doesn't come out in, the, in this, but it does come out in the uh, text of the, of the Gospels if you look at them all harmonized. One of the things that happened is as soon as John is in prison, Jesus' ministry takes off because now the forerunner is out of the way and Jesus is on center stage and all of the crowds start coming to him. Notice, now go back to Matthew chapter 11. So John's in prison and Jesus is ministering and what is it that Jesus is doing? He's healing the sick. He's uh, raising the dead. Uh, he's cleansing lepers. He's restoring people who have had uh, congenital uh, birth defects, doing all those kinds of things. And when John heard in prison what Christ was doing, he sent his disciples to ask him, are you the one who was to come or should we expect someone else? And notice, John over and over has said, I'm the forerunner. I'm the one who comes before. But now he's in prison and what do you see going on in John's mind? He's having some doubts. Now why are those doubts arising? Because what does he hear Jesus is doing? Healing, cleansing, raising from the dead, preaching. But what was it? What was the messianic expectation? What was it that John was expecting from the Messiah? He was expecting vengeance. That's right, the vengeance of God and divine retribution. And he said, that's not what Jesus is doing. See, he didn't know, like many people in that day didn't know, that there was going to be a twofold coming of Christ once and then Jesus would die and be resurrected, and then one day he will return uh, again. So John had some expectations. Uh, and Jesus replied, notice verse 4, Go back and report to John what you hear and see. The blind receive sight, the lame walk, those who have leprosy are cured, the deaf hear, the dead are raised, and the good news is preached to the poor. Blessed is the man who does not fall away, on account of me. Now what Jesus, this, this sounds like an odd answer to Jesus' question. Are you the one or should I be looking for somebody else? And Jesus said, you go back and tell John this. The blind are receiving their sight. Now why, why did Jesus do that? What Jesus was doing is he was referring John to Isaiah chapter 35, verse 5. In fact, if you look in the left-hand column of your notes under... Uh, uh, Roman numeral 4, part C, part 2, part B, the basis of uh, expectation, notice that first passage, Isaiah 35, verses 3 and 4, strengthen the feeble knees, steady the knees that give way, say to those with fearful hearts, be strong, do not fear, your God will come, 
He will come with vengeance, with divine retribution. He will come to save you. That's Isaiah chapter 35, verses 3 and 4. But the next verse, verse 5, has to do with the healing of the sight of the blind and, uh, and doing these other things. So Jesus is pointing John. He said, look, John, you're focusing on one part of the prophecy and you're missing the other part. Uh, same way with, uh, uh, well, let, let's keep looking in Matthew 11, verse 7. As, John, as John's disciples were leaving, that is presumably go back, going back to see John, it said Jesus began to speak to the crowd about John. He said, what did you go out in the desert to see? A reed swayed by the wind? Somebody who just blows whichever way the wind blows? Is that the way John did? <laughs> no, John did his own blowing, and he was bowling other folks over. If not, what did you go out to see? A man dressed in fine clothes? Was that the way John was dressed? No. He said, no, those who wear fine clothes are in king's palaces. Then what did you go out to see? A prophet? Yes, I tell you, and more than a prophet. This is the one about whom it is written, and Jesus quotes from Malachi chapter 3, verse 1. I will send my messenger ahead of you who will prepare your way before you. I tell you the truth, among those born of women... There has not risen anyone greater than John the Baptist. He said, look, you can go back and you can look at all those prophets of the Old Testament, as important as and impressive as they were, there's not a one that had a more important job to do than the one who has been before you, this John that you refer to as John the Baptist, because he is the forerunner for me. He is the one who's blazing the way. Notice also verse 13. For all the prophets and the law prophesied until John, and if you're willing to accept it, he is the Elijah who was to come. He who has ears, let him hear. And here Jesus, of course, refers to Malachi chapter 4, verse 5, about the forerunner coming in the spirit of Elijah. Now John subsequently is executed uh, remember that uh, there was a big birthday party that was given and uh, Herodias' daughter, whose name was Salome, she's about 20 years old at the time, came in and, and just apparently did some sort of uh, sexually provocative uh, dance. And of course, Herod and most of the folks who were partying down at that time were under the influence of wine. And Herod Antipas was just so overcome with that that he told Salome, he said, he said, that's the best thing I ever saw. He said, just tell me what you want and I'll give it to you up to half the kingdom. Well, Salome's a girl. She didn't know what to ask for. So she went running to her mama, Herodias, and her mom said, tell him that I want the Baptist head on a platter and I want it right now. And because Herod had made that oath that he would give her anything that she asked for, uh, in front of all of these guests in order to maintain his integrity, I guess, as a king, if you'd like to use that term, uh, certainly to maintain his power. He had John executed and the head was, uh, was brought to her. What do we learn from all of this? Uh, I've noted three things there in the conclusion and final application. It says, first of all, a clear sense of call and purpose does not insulate us from times of doubt. You know, Jesus said, there's not a prophet that's been along who's any greater than John. And yet even John struggled with doubts. 
But isn't it interesting that Jesus didn't rebuke his doubts? Jesus sought to encourage him by pointing him to the Scriptures and said, John, you missed this part when you read it. Secondly, it's important to examine carefully whether our, uh, to examine carefully our expectations in the light of the Scriptures. Sometimes our unfulfilled expectations, whether they are valid or not, whether they are realistic or not, lead to disappointment, and when they do, they often can lead to doubt. John was very familiar with the Scriptures, but he was only familiar with them in terms of vengeance and retribution. And John had had direct revelation from God, this is my son, this is the one. John had had that, but John, because of his mindset and because of his own expectations, had at least for one little moment had missed out on all of that. And then thirdly, notice that God doesn't always satisfy our curiosity, but he does always commend faith in himself. That's what Jesus did. He pointed back to himself and he said, have faith in me. And it's important for us to remain faithful to Christ. Was John satisfied with Jesus' answer? We don't have any way of knowing. It never says. But Jesus didn't rebuke him at expressing disappointment or doubt. Jesus sought to encourage him by pointing him to the Scriptures. And that's what we need to do in those times when we feel deserted by God, when we are experiencing that dark side of the Christian experience, is that we need to turn to what we know is true, and that's God's Word, and to read it carefully and seek to understand it all. Because through that, God will encourage each of us greatly. Father, thank you so much again for your kindness and mercy, your grace, your goodness, and your love. Thank you for the story of the baptizer and uh, the wonderful way he followed in obedience uh, his calling and yet the struggles that he had. Lord, help us to be encouraged by that, that a man as great as that could still struggle himself. Help us in our own struggles. Lord, not to turn away and try to figure it out on our own, but to do what John did, to turn to you. You've been listening to Focus on Truth, the Bible teaching ministry of Chuck Bradshaw. Focus on Truth is a non-denominational evangelical Christian ministry to the marketplace. Your gifts to Focus on Truth are tax deductible. Write to Focus on Truth, Box 5367, Columbus, Georgia, 31906.